You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Liron Eleanor, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. I fell for it hook, line, and sinker. Tech stocks were the rage, and so I walked into a local Fidelity and put all my money in tech and healthcare mutual funds. The year was 1999, and little did I know that the dot-com bubble would ravage my precious savings. And it did. Completely. I was the victim of hype. I was young, aggressive, and misinformed, or better yet, just ignorant. I had done none of the real due diligence. FOMO. Fear of missing out. If I could succumb to it in 1999 before the smartphone and the sprawling social media landscape of today, what must it be like now? On the other hand, I and other personal finance content producers proclaim that we use social media to educate and inform. So which is it? Hype or hope? What are you being peddled on the internet? Dr. Liren Eleanor is a recent Harvard PhD grad whose research is focused on changes in trading behavior fueled by heavier-than-ever social media use, widespread working from home, and more. He's found that these historic shifts have led to riskier trading behavior than ever before among a mostly financially illiterate and overconfident pool of retail investors— Lear and Eleanor, welcome to Earn and Invest. Now, tell me the truth. Did you buy GameStop, especially at the height of the hype? Hi, Jordan. First of all, really great to be here. Uh, and and truthfully, uh, I did. Uh, <laughs> and, and one of the, you know, in, in general, one of the things that, that I uh, uh, tell everybody is that despite writing, uh, you know, probably several hundreds of pages, on on behavioral biases uh, and kind of mistakes that uh, individual traders make, I still make uh, you know ninety percent of them myself because in in oftentimes these things are kind of inherent in who we are inherent inherent in how we think uh, and it's very very difficult to to change this behavior. It's an interesting point. I wasn't going to go here, but your response makes me question. I think this is a question that maybe we're going to have throughout this conversation. If People like you who study this and even know better, and if it's truly inherent, do there need to be more protections in place? So I'll, I'll say two things. First, uh, you know, uh, I'll give just one, one example uh, um, to your point. The most famous, uh, probably heavily studied bias of, of investors, it, it's called the disposition effect, which is basically the increased tendency to sell stocks at a gain compared to a loss. 
So for example, if a stock goes up by 10%, you're happy yourself. If it starts going down, it goes by, uh, down by 10%. You're saying, no, I don't want to sell. It'll probably you know, rebound. And kind of it takes a very long time for you to actually uh, be able to sell. Now, the interesting thing about that is that has been documented uh, across wealth advisors, hedge fund managers, portfolio managers, you know, probably any any professional investors that you could imagine in exactly the same way that it has been documented across retail investors or individual investors. So that that is very true. And I think um, that, um, you know, changing this behavior, pushing people to do something different is very, very hard. Uh, we're not going to talk about this now, but maybe at the end, a little bit about um, about my company. But we're actually coming from that place and saying changing personal behavior or changing what people do or want to do is very, very hard. So let's help them in a different way. And the way that we're doing it is, is uh, primarily via automation. So I want to jump into your thesis for your PhD work. You wrote an academic paper to the moon or bust. Do retail investors profit from social media induced trading? Before we get to the results of that, I, I want to go back to your PhD training. What made you to decide to study this entity? Like, how did you get interested in this? Actually, you know, when I started my uh, my PhD, um, I came in more focused on kind of doing M&A type of research, uh, looking M&A's mergers and acquisitions. I always say that and, 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 and not everybody knows what it is. So uh, mergers and acquisitions research. But somewhere along the way, um, there were a lot of shifts uh, that we saw in in you know in the stock market in the way that retail uh traders do things a lot of that was related to to covid and you know when uh traditionally we saw that uh individual investors were around 10% of the stock market during covid it boomed to 20 25% on some days even 30 and that was kind of all over the place uh and and that kind of caught my interest and caught my um you know attention and i i wanted to start looking into that when I started doing this research, everybody was kind of, what are you doing? It's not, you know, retail investors are not really an important part of the the economy and stuff like that. But but uh, w w when I finished the research, it, it suddenly became a very, very, uh, very, very important part of of day to day life and what people are talking about. Uh, so that was kind of nice to see. I feel like the meme stock craze introduced non-personal finance people to this idea of retail investors. I, we we didn't really hear that term, I think, bandied around as much as we did after the meme stock craze. So what is a retail investor? And to the point of what you said, how big of a part of the kind of financial economy do they play? Retail investor is simply an individual investor. That That is just a kind of uh, academic term or professional term to call a person who trades, uh, you know, for their own, uh, uh, you know, benefit or for, for their own kind of utility. Now, truthfully, the, the whole uh, meme stock frenzy uh, was kind of a major uh, catalyst in kind of putting this forward. But these are processes that started a little bit before that. Um, you know, uh, zero commission stock trading that was introduced primarily by Robinhood, but by a few others also kind of brought that to the forefront. Uh, and then uh, a few, several other things that came out over the past decade. Uh, a lot of technological advances that made 
trading very, very easy and easily accessible, right? You can do it from an app on your phone where 20 years ago you, you had to call someone, you know, to, to, to facilitate a trade. So all of this kind of brought retail traders to the forefront. Now, how large a part did they play in the economy? Uh, it's debatable. So historically, uh, we've seen that, you know, um, uh, around 10% of stock market volume can be attributed to uh, retail traders. Uh, during kind of COVID, it went up, as I mentioned, to 20, 25%, sometimes even 30. It has gone back down. Uh, not exactly to 10%, uh, but, but somewhere in the middle. And eventually, most of stock market activity uh, is not retail traders. It's, it's professional traders. There's also a lot of research and a lot of debate on whether retail investors actually contribute, um, um, you know, to the efficiency of the stock market or just add noise, right? Just add speculation uh, and eventually don't really uh, enhance the efficiency of the market, but ra rather kind of hinder it or deteriorate it. I'm interested a priori before the results started coming in how you thought retail investors were performing because i know you know warren buffett's great bet and the hedge fund managers and realizing that a lot of the pros were not necessarily doing a great job of meeting the market or beating the market before the numbers started coming in how did you think the retail investors were going to be doing as a whole i or we are not the first people who have you know generally looked at at retail traders and there is a lot of historic evidence that so for marketing perspectives, a lot of academics say that retail traders lose money. They don't really lose money. Uh, they basically underperform compared to some, you know, total market index, let's say the S&P 500. So there is, you know, uh, a lot of data spanning back, you know, decades showing that on average and always research is on is, is it kind of an average result, right? There's always outliers to, to both uh, extremes, but on average, uh, retail investors, um, individual investors basically underperform uh, compared to just putting their money in some um, mutual fund or some ETF or some kind of broad index. Which is not necessarily different from many hedge fund managers and professionals do tend to underperform. Your thesis really focused, at least part of it, focused on this idea of what drives retail investors to do what they do. And specifically, you're looking at social media, how trends in social media affect the specific moves that these retail investors are making. Let's start with the most simple before we get into the results. How did you define social media? Because it hits me like there's all sorts of different kinds of social media. I mean... We know what traditional media is, right? Traditional media is newspapers, it's television, et cetera. But social media just seems like a broad term. How did you then narrow that down when you were deciding on how to do your research? Truthfully, uh, it has to do with two things. One is, um, you know, uh, you try to define it in the best way to advance your research. And two, you are limited by the availability of data, right? So it's not that... Uh, we can actually define it in any way that we want and then have the data to to kind of support that. So in our paper, we basically did had two main measures. One is uh, basically based on uh, Reddit's Wall Street bets. And that is a very, uh, it's a relatively narrow, but a very kind of precise or accurate definition of social media, because we all agree, uh, you know, that that Reddit's Wall Street bets is, is you know, um, kind of the, the most proper definition of that. Uh, a second was a more broad proxy for social media, 
provided by by this company called Refinitiv that does these kind of data um, things. Uh, and they uh, basically kind of scan the entire web uh, and, and incorporate things um, that are both kind of like Wall Street bets that are proper social media and kind of things that are adjacent like blogs and these kind of articles that are not formally in, in kind of a news outlet, but some, you know, appear some, somehow on the web. Our results generally held for both, uh, which was um, obviously a, a very strong point in, in, in our research. So let's focus down on Reddit, because I think that's something a lot of people understand, especially after the meme stock issue that we kind of went through. How did you measure the quantity of social media discussion? So let's say we're talking about, for instance, a stock like GameStop. How did you quantitate how often it was being measured and to what extent was above the noise? Right. So uh, we basically call that, uh, we called it abnormal uh, social media volume. And it's a very simple measure. Basically, what we did is uh, we counted the amount of times that, you know, a specific stock such as GameStop uh, was mentioned on a specific day. And we basically benchmarked that to um, an, an average of the amount of time that that specific stock was mentioned over a certain period of time. So let's say uh, uh, the past 30 days with some uh, kind of uh, lag or some difference so as not to capture the past, you know, week. So kind of uh, 30 days, then a week break, and then uh, today. So uh, when we do it that way, we're basically looking at abnormal activity so that we're seeing how much compared to some average this stock is being mentioned today. And I think that when you think of big stocks like Microsoft or Google, they're obviously mentioned a lot, right? So if you just count the number of times that they're mentioned, you will basically always find them kind of at the top. Although um, from an abnormal perspective, they may very well not be there. So my understanding of your research is you kind of had two different pieces. One piece were the social media mentions. And so you measured that based on a baseline and how much of an increase happened at a given time. But then you had to actually match it up to the other piece, which was retail trading data. Talk to me about the source of your trading data, because my understanding is that's actually what really made your thesis unique is you had this data that maybe not everyone has access to. Right. So um, we basically got access uh, to um, uh, the full trading data of, of a global trading platform. Uh, I'm not, they don't allow me to say their name, but basically uh, a trading platform that has, um, you know, tens of millions of users across the world, I think in like 140 uh, countries. And they basically gave us access to their entire trading records. So, you know, uh, the full trade log where we see kind of the full list of trades on the platform uh, for a period of several years, uh, KYC data, anonymized obviously, but KYC data, which is know your customer data specific, you know, demographics, uh, characteristics, age, and so on and so forth about, about um, you know, uh, their, their clients. Uh, and we were able basically to use all that to look at what people actually do and when. That is a very powerful tool. Just as an aside, how did you convince them to give this to you without maybe giving mm. away anything about who they are? Honestly, uh, it was a complete fluke. So um, I have a friend who uh, works there uh, in kind of a relic, like a C-suite position. And I uh, just randomly gave him a call and I'm like, do you mind, like, uh, can I get access to your data? What do you think about that? And like, 
two days later, I just had uh, like the data. It was uh, a complete fluke. Uh, have no idea how that happened, but you know, <laughs> uh, you you don't you don't ask uh, unnecessary questions. You just take it and run off. So before we get to the actual conclusions. Let's just talk about the volume of retail trades as related to specific social media mentions. Before we get into good or bad, did you see the volume of trades really did change when you saw an increase in mentions for a given stock or equity? Yes. And I I think that the the interesting uh, thing that we found is obviously when you decide, you know, what stock to to trade or to buy, uh, it's a search problem, right? There are thousands of stocks, right? How do you find which one you want to trade? There's obviously no way, especially if you're not a professional trader, that you're going to, uh, you know, research and look at, you know, thousands of stocks. When you sell, it's easier because you have the stocks that you have, and then you just choose one, one of them and you sell. Uh, but um, basically, traditional research has basically found that uh, individual traders trade based on what we call uh, kind of attention-grabbing events, quote unquote, which means something needs to grab your attention in order to make you kind of pay attention to that stock and then go ahead and buy it. Right? And traditionally, these attention-grabbing events, um, kind of the traditional ones that we see, are abnormal trading volume. When a stock, it's kind of a chicken and an egg in a way, but when a stock is traded a lot, then that grabs your attention. The second is um, abnormal returns on the previous day. When a stock either performed very well or very poorly yesterday, then that grabs your attention. And finally, it's it's basically abnormal news coverage in kind of traditional news outlets, whether it's television uh, or you know other uh, uh, financial uh, newspapers or or. Um, outlets on the internet. Uh, But what we saw in our research is that today social media has become uh, uh, the primary kind of informa- uh, attention-grabbing uh, source, uh, more than 50% kind of greater than uh, than the next one. And today, that is, for most people, uh, that thing that grabs their attention and things that actually makes you really decide, um, you know, which stock to trade or which stock to follow and look at and, and kind of think about. So I've been keeping everyone at bay for the whole conversation. Let's get to the actual results. Obviously, from what you're saying, clearly social media references affect trading volume, but is it serving the retail investor? What exactly did you find? So we found that that it doesn't, right? Uh, but but before I say why it doesn't, uh, it, it is important to say that there are two sides to this, right? Um, and there is evidence social media does have advantages, right? Primarily uh, in disseminating information or uh, bringing information uh, uh, to a larger audience. For example, if uh, if a company posts their earnings release on, on Twitter or now it's X, then more people get access to it, more people are aware of it. Uh, and and that, that is a positive thing, right? Uh, in addition, uh, we are seeing, you know, if you go on uh, Reddit and sometimes you look at analyses that people post, they're very good, right? Uh, oftentimes, like really better than than what uh, hedge fund analysts are doing uh, and, and kind of things like that. So if you rely on this, these things, there are advantages to it. Uh, but on average, uh, we are seeing uh, that uh, retail traders uh, who follow social media do 
uh, underperformer lose money. Uh, part of it is because some of it is is related to scams. You know, uh, social media is used for kind of pump and dump and dump schemes and things like that. But the other part is that is just that it exacerbates uh, certain behaviors that uh, retail traders uh, kind of have regardless. The major one that we looked at is just kind of market timing. And basically what we saw is that uh, retail traders are just uh, generally too late to the game. And they basically, the, the point in time where a specific stock grabs their attention, it's when that stock you know, is mentioned on social media so much that it's also kind of at the peak of it, of its price. And then when these retail investors come in and they buy that stock, then a day or two later, the, the price actually starts going down and then they, they end up losing money. I want to talk more about why. So you mentioned market timing. You've also mentioned the market or the disposition effect. But before we get to that, how profound was the effect? I mean, how much are they underperforming when these retail investors are kind of following the social media loop? We looked at it in, uh, I would say, two two kind of different ways. One was uh, at the uh, individual trade level. So we looked at specific trades, which we classified as social media trades, which were uh, trades that relied kind of heavily on social media. Uh, and, and the other was uh, basically at the larger portfolio level. Uh, now, what we saw is that on average, uh, a social media trades underperforms by approximately two two basis point or two percent the the average trade uh, and that is meaningful uh, and and we saw how meaningful that was when we looked at uh, the portfolio level where there uh, there it's a, it's a harder statistical um, you know um, problem to actually frame it in the way that you're comparing apples to apples so what we essentially did there is we looked at the percentage of trades within your portfolio during a specific year that we can classify as uh, as kind of based on social media. And what we saw there was that a 1% increase in the percentage of trades that are based on social media it has a negative effect of 2% on your annualized portfolio returns. That means that if 10% of your portfolio is social media trades, right? That's a negative effect of 20% annually. And that, that's huge. Now, take it with a grain of salt because with the annual uh, return calculation from a statistical perspective, it's just, it just harder to actually make an, actual, uh, an accurate prediction, but it does give us a very good sense of, of where this is going and, and how much uh, negative effects social media can have on, on your trading can we generalize this data to other non-equity assets, things like crypto, commodities, other stuff? Yeah, so we we uh, we did it a little bit. Uh, what we uh, so we didn't have really good data on social media that is not related to stocks, right? Social media about uh, uh, crypto or or commodities or uh, forex or stuff like that. But what we were able to show is that 
people who rely heavily on social media for stock trading uh, and, and therefore kind of underperform in stock trading also underperform when they trade other types of assets, right? Whether it's, again, uh, crypto or Forex or commodities or anything else. And we assume that it's for the same reasons, that their behavior in stock trading kind of generalizes to the way that they behave um, in other forms of trading. Uh, but that is something, um, uh, again, that we kind of hypothesize, but we're not able to, to actually really prove. We are talking to Liren Eleanor. He is a recent Harvard PhD grad whose research is focused on changes in trading behavior fueled by heavier than ever social media use. And we are discussing part of his PhD thesis, which relates to social media mentions and retail trading behavior. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. LinkedIn Sales Navigator is a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenues, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash earn. That is linkedin.com slash E-A-R-N for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash earn and get started. We are back with Liren Eleanor. He is a recent Harvard PhD grad whose research is focused on changes in trading behavior fueled by heavier than ever social media use, widespread working from home, and more. And we are talking about part of his PhD thesis, an academic paper which he discusses retail trading and how it is affected by social media. And as we discussed before, Liren, basically retail traders are underperforming based on some of these social media mentions. First and foremost, talk about some of the demographics of these retail traders. Is this a snapshot of all retail traders that you can tell, or is there a very specific group of people who's kind of being affected by social media? 
Yeah, so I think it is representative of the general population. However, we we have to say that this obviously affects uh, a younger demographic more than it does uh, an older demographic. Now, uh, a shortcoming uh, of our research was, uh, and I mentioned this before, is that basically you work with the data that you have. Uh, and our uh, platform is a platform that is kind of akin to Robinhood, and therefore, most of the retail traders that we saw there are kind of on the younger side, kind of a little bit more risk takers, maybe with less trading experience, maybe slightly less educated than kind of the average person. Uh, and our findings uh, are based on, you know, the data that we have. Having said that, uh, from a little, um, a few sanity checks that we did and kind of trying to look at older data sets that, that are kind of out and about and kind of trying to work with them, uh, we did find similar results. Um, so I do believe that this generalizes to kind of the more general population, but obviously, you know, intuitively, uh, you know, a, a six-year-old is probably less reliant on social media than a 25 or a 30-year-old. So I want to circle back onto the reasons for the underperformance. You talked about timing of the market, and I, I think this gets into market efficiency a little bit, right? You were mentioning before, do retail investors affect market efficiency? Well, part of the reason maybe they're underperforming is because the market is so efficient and they're late to the game, right? They're buying too late and they're selling too late. Uh, and then you mentioned the disposition effect. Talk to me about the disposition effect specifically and how you think it affects this underperformance. So um, let me just kind of recap a little bit what the disposition effect is. It's basically an asymmetry between uh, the tendency to sell um, a stock at a gain and the tendency to st sell a stock at a loss, where we are seeing that uh, people are a lot more prone uh, to sell stocks at a gain and are very reluctant to sell stocks at a loss. And uh, there is some um, uh, research on this, and I, I have a different paper on this, where the most kind of the leading psychological explanation for this is that people really don't want to admit that they made a mistake, right? If you bought a stock and it goes down, then you're kind of uh, psychologically inclined to believe that it will rebound uh, and go back up. So what we're basically showing in our paper is that um, social media basically exacerbates the disposition effect. So when you trade a stock based on social media, the disposition effect actually increases and your belief that it will rebound in a way uh, is increased. So you kind of hold it even longer, right? So the loss that you eventually see on these stocks is greater uh, than for stocks that, that are not based on social media. So we've been talking about social media so far. In fact, that's what your data delved into. How do you think this relates to, to traditional media, right? I mean, all of these things are also mentioned in traditional media. We see them in newspapers and on TV. Do you think the effects are as profound? And I know you might not have specifically studied that, but just kind of what do you think as you've been studying this? Is it the same or is it different? So actually, we did include in all of our analyses a proxy for uh, regular media. And traditionally, uh, you know, regular media uh, has been considered one of the main attention-grabbing events. Uh, but what we're seeing is that social media completely dominates uh, all of the effects of regular media uh, to the point that they're almost non-existent. And, and in a way, 
that makes sense because you know even regular media today is is kind of put into social media so it really doesn't have a lot of you know uh kind of uh, I don't know what the best word for this, like autonomy of its own, or it's, it doesn't stand on its own today. But but in any case, I think that um, traditional media was an attention-grabbing event in the past, a little bit less so today. But the negative effects that we're seeing for uh, social media are obviously a lot more dominant uh, with social media than they ever were uh, with uh, with media. A lot because of one, the amount of people who are exposed to social media versus kind of regular media, and, and the amount of people who are exposed to social media are oftentimes less experienced, younger. Um, uh, they have a less of an understanding of what uh, the risks uh, that are entailed in trading are and so on and so forth. Uh, and two, I think that traditional media did some job of, of, of filtering, you know, the information that they're putting out there. Uh, and in social media, you just have everything. Right. So um, it kind of throws everything at you uh, and you pretty much have to figure it out by yourself. So let's look from a thousand feet. You did the study. You found what you found. You realized that maybe there's some real negative effects of social media on the behavior retail investors. Has this changed your general beliefs about education through social media? Because I realize that young people, especially today, we learn a lot through social media, especially if you include YouTube as part of that. This is a major way in which we gather information. Has it changed the way you think about that? Well, yes and no. So uh, I think that, you know, social media can be used to do a lot of good, right? And can be used to uh, educate people uh, and uh, bring them a lot of value and bring them information. Uh, and obviously uh, with the younger generation who are, um, you know, uh, kind of, again, YouTube, TikTok, and, and, and so on uh, are, are very good tools to do that. The problem is uh, that you can't really control what you see on social media, right? And then uh, for every, you know, uh, piece of good advice, you can have 10 pieces of bad advice and there's really not a good mechanism uh, to differentiate between them. And, and there's a lot of uh, um, kind of, you know, uh, danger in that. So, so that's one aspect. Uh, the other aspect is, and, and that that is not um kind of not specifically related to social media, but there's also a question about how much uh, of this behavior can actually be changed. And we started off uh, by me saying that, you know, after writing hundreds of pages on this, I still do a lot of these same things, right? So I believe that you can use social media to educate people on the basics, but I doubt whether you can really use social media to overcome, uh, you know, behavioral biases or tendencies or psychological effects that each and every one of us, uh, you know, inherently has. After doing this research, do you think social media influencers should be held to a higher standard than they are currently today? Yes, uh, I think that um, social media influencers um, uh, should have responsibility for what they're posting. Uh, we are seeing 
that uh, regulators, the FCC and so on, uh, have been doing some activity along those lines over the past few years. Especially with crypto, right? Yes. I mean, especially yes. with a lot of the, the hyping up the crypto by um, influencers, et cetera. Right. Right. And FINRA, for example, formed uh, a, um, a new uh, social media task force uh, a few years ago that is kind of looking into these issues. So definitely. Yeah. So I want to spend a few minutes briefly touching on the other research you did, because this was part of your thesis, but there were some other pieces to it. And last but not least, I also want to give you a moment to talk about the business you started and why you started it. But let's first look at the other parts of that thesis. Just briefly, you studied both how retail investors use leverage and also this idea from working from home and how it affected them. Just briefly, what did you find? Yeah, so um, in terms of work for, from home, uh, we basically came at it, obviously, during COVID. But the idea there was that there has long been a question of whether increased attention that people, you know, um, pay to their portfolios to stock trading is actually a beneficial thing, whether increased attention to uh, your portfolio improves your performance. But there's always there was always a problem of how how do you measure attention? Right. It's uh, um, one, there's a problem with with getting data on that. Uh, And two, even if you do have some data, it's typically very uh it's kind of on an aggregate level so people have used like google search volume and things like that which are not you know not very accurate so basically what we did was that we uh used the work from home, from home phenomenon specifically the the regulatory mandates that governments imposed on uh people in different countries you know to stay at home to measure the amount of time that you have, right? And the assumption was that if you're kind of stuck at home, you generally have more time. And we did see that people uh, who were at home, who worked from home, paid increased attention to their portfolios. We measured attention by looking at your responses to messages sent by the broker. So if the broker sends you a message, whether you open it, how long it takes you to open it, and so on. And we saw um, uh, that people pay more attention when they work from home. And more importantly, we saw that people who work from home, one, trade more and are more prone to day trading. So they kind of buy and sell on the same day. Uh, But two, and more interestingly, is that their performance is improved. Hmm. So uh, the ability to be at at home, uh, assuming that it reflects the amount of attention that you pay to your portfolio actually does uh, improve your performance. And that that was a very interesting finding. The third part of of my thesis really uh, looked at leverage and if I need to sum it up in, in like one sentence, uh, uh, leverage is awful. Don't use it. Uh, <laughs> and then the the basically the uh, idea is that the use of leverage in trading, we show that it causes uh, individual investors not only to underperform uh, an index like the S and P five hundred, but actually to lose money. Right. That means to get to earn negative absolute returns. Right. To kind of you know. Uh, actually lose money. Uh, And we saw 
that uh, a regulatory change in Europe that limited the amount of leverage that these brokerages can give uh, retail traders significantly improved the performance of these traders and kind of had a very uh, positive effect um, on, on, on the market and on, on the performance of these traders. So in a moment, I want to talk about how this research eventually led to you forming a business. But before we do, are you generally bullish about how retail investors are going to perform in the future? Like, what do you think is going to be the trend over the next 10 years? So I, I think two things. One, I, I didn't make this up, but, uh, you know, financial advisors historically are telling people that generally retail investors or retail traders should focus on investing in indices, whether it's mutual funds or ETFs or some other form, um, uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, trading individual stocks uh, with the understanding that it's very, very hard to actually beat the index, right? It's very, very hard, even if you are very well informed uh, and kind of do it as as kind of a day trader, which or as pretty much as your job. It's even harder if you're not doing this as your day job and you kind of do it on your spare time and have a very limited attention paid to it. So that that is one thing. Uh, the other thing is that I think that in general, if you look at long horizons, the stock market goes up, right? So if you have a long investment horizon, Chances are that if you invest in the stock market, you will earn very good gains compared to other avenues of, of investment who generally have less risk. But again, this really has to do with your investment horizon. If you know that you need the money uh, in, in one or two years, then you know if something happens to the market, uh, you may lose money. Uh, but if you know that you don't need the money for the next 10 years and can just sit there, then it's I wouldn't say that it's a risk-free because uh, it's not. There is risk in the market, but generally, chances are that that the stock market will go uh, go up in such a long period of time. So, tell us what you're up to now and how your research led to eventual business opportunities. Basically, what happened was that at some point during my PhD, uh, we started interviewing people, uh, and uh, today I think we interviewed uh, over two thousand people already. Uh, and the the first question in all of these interviews was always, "What is the main pain point in your financial life?" And after writing, you know, we we just talked about this for uh, for forty five minutes. After writing uh, so much about trading and investments and and things like that. I really wanted people to talk about that, right? I expected people to tell me that their main pain point in their financial life is that they don't know what stock uh, to trade today. But, but really, nobody did. Uh, over 98% of respondents, including middle class, including upper class, uh, just talked about day-to-day -day stuff. Uh, and day-to-day -day stuff like, oh, I have all these accounts, I don't know what to do, or my kids 529s, I don't understand what's going on, or all these credit cards or FSA accounts or taxes and kind of things like that. So that kind of shifted my gear a lot towards starting to look at more day-to-day -day financial decisions um, um, or kind of more cash management decisions of, of individuals. And when we started looking at that, the second interesting thing that came up is that Americans, uh, and this is true for the lowest uh, decile of the wealth distribution up until the highest decile of the wealth distribution, spend between one to two minutes per week on personal finance. And that that is a scary number. 
right? So, you know, we talked about trading. People can trade stocks for hours. They enjoy it. You know, they, they do it. But when it comes to the day-to-day cash management, financial things that you need to do, nobody wants to do it. And people kind of generally avoid it. And that's why what we're trying to do uh, at Cash is basically uh, build a solution that completely automates all of these day-to-day financial decisions. And generally what we're telling people is, you know, you do you. You want to do a minute or two a week, that's fine. We're building a solution that fits into that time frame and allows you to do things better. And in most cases, optimally. So, Liren, I wanted to thank you for coming on today. At the beginning of my introduction, I asked that when it comes to social media and personal finance, which is it, hype or hope? And I feel like we've somewhat answered that question because in a sense, if you are looking for financial information from social media, a place, for instance, called Wall Street Bets, what you're really doing is you're talking about speculation and not necessarily investment. And because of market efficiency, because you are not a professional who's spending every moment looking at the latest, the likelihood is if you are deciding what stocks to pick because you are watching social media or looking into Reddit, you're probably going to choose unwisely. On the other hand, if you're using social media to educate yourself about basic facts, like what were the earnings statement for this company this month or this week, or if you're looking to grow your investments and learn about things like index investing and Roth IRAs and those type of things, it can be a really good place to gain knowledge and insight into how to do better at investing and building wealth. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you if people have questions or want to learn more about your work, what is the best way for them to get in touch with you? So uh, you can find me on on LinkedIn. I'm not a big social media person, but on LinkedIn, uh, Liron Eleanor, or if you go to our website, mycache.ai, click the help button and our team will basically forward me the email. Liron Eleanor, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. I want to jump right into last week's episode with Bryce and Christy for Millennial Revolution, where we talked about their 10-year anniversary of financial independence and leaving their jobs. We talked about all the changes that they've gone through, both emotionally and physically, having a child, losing a parent. So many things have changed for them. I want to go right here to the comments in Facebook. This is from Frank Vasquez. Usually I normally wouldn't use someone's name, but he's pretty public and open with Risk Parity Radio, which is his podcast. He responded to this episode by saying, that was a nice catch up and where are they now? They seem to be a lot happier than they used to be and have lightened up on the grim determination of winning financial independence. Having children tends to do that. It does kind of confirm that the actual withdrawal strategy of most financial independence personalities has nothing to do with yield shields or strategically organized portfolios. They really just have a 60-40 portfolio when you pull off all the labels, but is simply don't spend much money and or continue to make money monetizing one or more aspects of your life. I think Go Curry Cracker is the only public financial independence personality I've seen that implements anything resembling the 4% rule in terms of level of spending. 
He goes on to say, thankfully, they did not take the fear-based advice given to them in 2015 by other financial independence personalities that they could only expect to be able to spend 3%. This is, he's talking about Go Curry Cracker here. But Frank makes a great point. We spend a huge amount of time worrying about safe withdrawal rates. But when we look at people who've actually gone through early retirement, people who were striving towards financial independence and got there, we realize that most of them don't actually follow the 4% rule. It's just human nature. Markets go up and maybe we spend a little bit more. Markets go down and maybe we spend a little bit less. And more importantly, maybe we get excited by doing something and it creates some income. So one way or another, we really spend a lot of time stressing about a net worth or a withdrawal rate number that probably doesn't really play out in real life. So the question is why? Well, you know, I would say a big part of that is because life is messy. And once you solve the issue of money, you have to really do a deep dive into what's important to you. And this gets back to the talk about purpose. And I know I keep on bringing it up over and over again. But what I think we see in people who've become financially independent is the numbers start meaning less over time. They worry less about money. But what does matter is doing things that feel important to them and that fill them up, i.e. things that are purposeful. The reason why no one sticks to the 4% safe withdrawal rate is sometimes things that are purposeful cost more money and you have to spend a little more. And sometimes things that are purposeful actually generate revenue and you end up spending less because you make more. All that being said and done, the point is that very few people actually stick to the script. And so I think that this should give us all a little bit of hope, especially for those who feel like financial independence is a long way off or that basically it's a goal that they're never going to reach. What I think we find from financially independent people is they spend less time worrying about money and more time worrying about doing things that's meaningful for them. And usually their projections aren't exactly what they need. In fact, often they over project. So if you're at a place where you do not have a high enough net worth or you can't safely withdraw 4%, that doesn't mean you can't start thinking about what's important to you. In fact, what's important to you may actually create some revenue. The point being is that we need to integrate these things into our lives earlier. And I think if you talk to people like Christy and Bryce or Carl and Mindy from Mr. 1500 Days and the Mindy on Money podcast and a few other people, you'll realize that when they reach their financial independence point, they actually felt a certain amount of stress and anxiety because they didn't know what they wanted to do with their time. And they felt like money was the thing that was holding them back until they realized that it wasn't money holding them back. What was really holding them back was the fact that they hadn't put much time into thinking about who they wanted to be or what they wanted to do with their life. Now they had enough money, they could start thinking about those things, but that's really tough. These are big emotional questions that take a lot of energy. So all I'm saying is you can worry about your numbers and you can stress about getting exactly the right net worth or having exactly the right safe withdrawal rate. But I would tell you instead, maybe you should think about what feels purposeful in your life and how do you pursue that now as well as when you retire. In the meantime, if you're having trouble with this, I certainly can help you. As you guys know, I started the Path to Purpose coaching program, and I would love, love to help any of you who feel like purpose is something you just can't figure out. Go to earnandinvest.com slash coaching. Again, that's earnandinvest.com slash coaching. 
All right, I leave things running just for a few seconds. Cut the um at the end. Yeah, oh yeah, I'll get rid of it. Don't worry about it. So I leave things running just for a few seconds to kind of as an after show to catch anything we talk about afterwards. Anything about the research that I didn't bring up or we didn't talk about that you think is important? Um, no, I think your summary, I, I wanted to say I couldn't have summed it up better myself. I think that, you know, um, social media can be, you know, can have benefits, uh, can be dangerous and people need to use it and be aware, um, of, of, you know, of, of its, uh, um, of, of its dangers. And if they, they use it in, 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 uh, in that way, they, they kind of, you know, um, limit, limit the, the, the danger. So I think, I think your, your summary was, uh, you know, I, I really couldn't have said it better myself. Um, no, that, 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 you know, it's funny. I, I I look at the different answers, right? So the answer, one of the answers is is that FINRA and the SEC and all these governing bodies really crack down on influencers and change how they say and what they say, which on some level can happen, but it probably won't be as thorough as anyone would really want it. You know, I think the answer for like our group of people is the fund portfolio, right? So what we tell people is. Fine. 95% of what you invest is going to go in this much more reliable, safe indices. And if you really have the itch, go on Wall Street bets and play around with 5% of your portfolio and limit it. And, And to me, because as you even mentioned, like, you know better, you've been studying this stuff, but it's really hard not to do it because there's an element of gamesmanship and there's an element of fun to it. And I don't, you know, that's not necessarily bad when it's controlled in their guardrails. And so to me, that's like the answer is I think most people who have these kind of leanings, right? Because like me, I'm going to put it in the stock market and not think about it again. So it doesn't affect people like me as much. But for the grand majority who kind of get into this thing, it's like, dude, just put away a certain percentage of the fund portfolio. And if it outperforms, fantastic. And if you lose it all, you're fine. It's exactly right. So in a way, it's like gambling, right? If, if it's um, you can lose money, but if it's fun for you, we can't ignore that. That that has utility in and of itself, right? If it's fun for you and you enjoy it and you want to do it, then do it. Like I'm, I'm not, I'm not. Uh, um, I will never tell someone not to trade stocks if, if it's fun for them. But I completely agree. You need to put uh, a certain amount of money in it that you are willing to lose. You will probably not lose all of it, but you, that, that you are generally willing to lose. Uh, and when you do that, then you're basically, uh, you know, you're having fun uh, with with trading, but you're also not uh, jeopardizing, you know, your financial stability and your family and, and, and whatnot. Yeah. The other the other thing about the disposition effect, which was a newer term to me, but but keeps on coming to mind is if you watch any like the Netflix, the Netflix documentaries about the meme stock stuff you have all these people that they're interviewing and they're talking about GameStop going down and down and down. And they're all like, but I'm holding on because it's going to go back up again. I'm holding on because it's going to go back up again. And then at the end, you're like, yeah, I lost everything. <laughs> I have uh, I have another paper that, that's not not part of, of my thesis, but that we actually tried to look at, uh, kind of explore the psychological effects of the disposition effect more closely and what we did there is that we got data um from a platform that allows you um to follow other traders and what they're doing and we saw uh that 
generally once uh so there is there is um there is kind of old research that shows that when you buy a mutual fund for example the disposition effect is reversed hmm. and the hypothesis there was that now you can kind of blame the fund manager right it's like it's not my fault it's he he messed up so you know um once we see that it starts losing i'm just gonna dump it. boom yep yeah so in 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 the research that we basically had had the data of the followers we saw that at around 100 people that when you see that more uh, that around 100 people made the same mistake that you did it's easier for you to let go and then it kind of reverses yeah uh, so the 100 is kind of a, somewhat of a random number it was around 100 but the idea is that when you uh, when you know that it's not your mistake but rather a lot, a lot of people it's all ego down, it's all ego it's yeah. all ego it's all ego <laughs> It's all ego and and overconfidence is a very, very, very big thing in, in trading. Uh, it has several facets, but but a uh, very, very big thing. Little Dunning-Kruger, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.